Support for this podcast comes from Diversi Fund. Diversi Fund is an investment platform that allows everyday Americans the opportunity to invest directly into commercial real estate deals with the goal to help close the wealth gap and enable all Americans the ability to achieve financial freedom. Go to www.diversifund.com and use the offer code invest in the US when you sign up for an account and receive a $20 gift card when you make your first investment. That's diversifund.com. D I V E R S Y F U N D.com. Now back into the show. With the broker dealer, it is it's really one main exemption the thing you have to be aware of is you cannot compensate someone based on how much money they raise for you um, if they're an unrelated third party. So can't be a percentage of what they raise. It needs to be a, a fixed amount regardless. You're engaging someone to help you, pay them a fixed amount, not contingent on what they raise. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow, and ultimately created extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jeff Love. Jeff is an attorney and partner at Gibbs Gidden Law Firm here in Los Angeles. He practices and encompasses all facets of real estate transactions, including drafting and negotiating purchase, sales agreements, syndications, finance transactions in connection with commercial, industrial, and residential assets. He's also regularly drafts and negotiates office, retail, and industrial leases for regional landlords and tenants throughout the West Coast. Jeff is an extensive, has 
extensive experience in drafting, negotiating, and reviewing real estate loan documents, including originations, modifications, note purchase agreements, and other forms of finance-related transactions from structuring through to loan closing. He's a licensed real estate broker in the state of California, and he also resides here, mate. And uh, so I'm really excited and excited to have him on the show today, but enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Jeff. Welcome to the show. How you doing today, mate? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, man. Um, tell me, where do you live? I know we've met met a few times through a couple of uh, some of my networking events and and through people we know. But you're you're in the South Bay area, right? I am. I am down in the south of Redondo Beach. So beautiful city by the beach. But I am lucky enough to have a hour plus commute up to my office in Century City. Oh wow. <laughs> I don't, I'm going the other way because uh, the mutual friend of ours office is down in Hermosa and it's sort of, it's a 45 minute drive when, when traffic. So uh, yeah, I, I know your pain, big fella, but um, mate, uh, to, <laughs> to kick off the show, I ask all my guests to rewind the clock and uh, tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. First ever dollar. I actually, if I remember correctly, uh, used to be big into kind of sidewalk sales. So instead of selling lemonade like all the other kids down the street, I used to sell pencils when I was probably a five, six-year-old little guy. We'd open a little stand down the street from my parents' house and sell pencils, believe it or not. And that is probably where I made my first couple bucks. <laughs> and, and pencils meaning just like crowns or uh, just, you know, writing yeah, pencils? Yeah, you're normal every day, just just pencil. I don't really know what I was thinking and why I thought there'd be a big market for pencils on the on the side of the road, but that's what I decided to do and uh, made my first couple bucks. Nice, man, nice. So bring us through <laughs> to where you are today. You are you're obviously a real estate attorney, but, but walk us through that journey of, of why you wanted to get involved in real estate uh, law. Sure. So kind of before law school, during college and before, I was always interested in real estate. Loved seeing kind of deals get put together, um, seeing, you know, development, something come out of nothing. Um, in college, I worked for a development company that owned probably close to 20 million square feet of retail and industrial space throughout the country. And I just kind of fell in love with it. Uh, really just like I said, putting the deals together. So after college, I decided, you know, do I want to get an MBA, go into the business side, or maybe go to law school and learn more about the legal side of the field. Chose to go the law school route. Always had the intention of actually going to law school, but being a lawyer for a few years and becoming a real estate developer myself. Once I started practicing law, I just kind of fell in love with the legal side of it, getting to work with different clients, different stages of projects, different types of asset classes, and have been here ever since. Never felt the need to be the principal. I more enjoy being the kind of outside general counsel to many of my clients and advise them in you know, different areas of the real estate field. Nice, nice. And and you don't have that entrepreneurial bug like the rest of us do to, to become have your own firm one day? I used to. You know, <laughs> I, I, it still is deep down, but what I found is there are people, you know, smarter and better at finding deals than myself, and I have 
slowly been investing in their deals, which has scratched that itch a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I get enough of the kind of entrepreneur side living vicariously through them, seeing that, you know, the problems that can be encountered, the the highs, the lows, where I don't feel the need to do it anymore myself, but still actively involved in investing and will be for the foreseeable future. Awesome. Awesome stuff, man. Well, I want to dive a little bit into the nuts and bolts of in and around what we were speaking about before we hit record here in the green room. Um, but to, for everyone out there, you know, today's show is going to be a little bit about uh, syndication and, and understanding how to raise money legally uh, and, and you know, making sure you're not stepping on the toes of the SEC. So Jeff, do you want to maybe give a high level cursory review of what it is here in the United States that subsequent to the regulation D and private capital raising versus going out and trying to raise money from the stock exchange. Sure. So the bottom line is it comes down to when are you selling a a security? Um, When you're talking about public markets, they're all selling securities. When you're talking about private markets, depending on whether the, investor, so to speak, has an active role, that's really the dividing line. So if you are giving a sponsor money and you are going to take a passive role in that investment, you give them the money, you say, you run with it, you you make money for me, I'm going to sit on the sidelines, call me when my check is ready. That that sponsor is selling a security to you, where vis-a-vis if two people were both actively involved in the venture and they're both making decisions, they're both responsible for the, the day-to-day operation of the company, then you're more running a, a partnership. Not one, There's no one sponsor that's selling a security to someone else. Right. Got it. Got it. So you're talking about someone who has the complete control can decide when they sell the asset, when they paint the asset, when they, um, you know, refi or when they increase rents and, and, and the other side, you're talking more about a general partnership where people are all actively have an active role in it and they have a responsibility to go out and, you know, make the deal better, whether it be through renovations or you know, efficiency of management or better, better operational, better operationally, I should say. Um, that's essentially what you're saying between the difference between a private um, uh, capital raise and a public offering. Correct. And in the public, just to go back to that example, when you buy stock in a public company, say Apple, um, you don't have a decision in the day-to-day operation of the company. You're, you're a shareholder. You get a vote on shareholders meetings, typically big ticket items or the nomination in election of directors, but you're not deciding on a day-to-day basis whether what's going to go into into the new iPhone per se. Right, and right. Apple has sold you a security. You're a passive investor. Mm-hmm. Same type of thing on the on the private real estate field. If you're a passive investor, that sponsor has has sold you a security. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it's not a public company, so the securities aren't open to just anyone. The sponsor typically will vet you and there are certain requirements that need to be met for you to become an investor in that company. Right. And, and, and that's where the regulation D, um, the, the, the 19, what is it, 1933, when the, when the act first came out and, and really defining the difference between having to go public, which is extremely expensive, right, for, for, for small companies. They don't, not everyone wants to go public and raise money off the stock exchange, but there is these small companies that want to be able to raise uh, money from friends and family and, and maybe some other investors that they know. Uh, to help grow their business, right? And so that's where Regulation D um, came out back in the, 
uh, with, uh, you know, with the rules of 506, I think it's 506 B and 506 C and then 505 and 504. And I'm sort of quoting some things that I've known loosely, but um, that's, that's essentially what it's about, right? It was just the, the, the differentiate, the differentiation, uh, differentiation between going public, going to the stock, stock exchange versus going to friends and family and pooling a bit of small money together because you are a smaller company and you might not necessarily have the funds or, or the need or the want to go and go do an, it's called an IPO, right? Yeah, and the other, 1933 Act, one of the big kind of efforts why that came about was they wanted to protect these small investors that were investing in companies. So this act came about where the company had to meet certain regulations and thresholds to be able to smell, to sell to small investors. But today that's really morphed into not everyone wants to go out and raise $50 million. Not every Not every company is able to meet all of the regulations and disclosures and pay the costs available and frankly shouldn't have to when you're raising you know such a small amount of money but at the same time we want to spur business growth and be able to raise capital so those regulations that you have mentioned under 19 the 1933 act have allowed small companies not just in the real estate field but also in you know venture capital investments and on the corporate side of things to go out and raise small medium-sized amounts from friends and family and different investment rounds from more sophisticated and institutional investors yeah and it's very uh the the states is quite cutting edge uh, well not maybe cutting edge but maybe very business focused and business savvy compared to you know my home country of australia i know that the rules and regulations around raising capital here in the united states is a lot is is a lot more open for the average investor to get involved, but also for the average business to go and raise capital. Where in Australia, it's more, you know, definitely high net worth individuals can only qualify. So um, do you want to maybe define the difference between what an accredited investor is and a sophisticated investor is and, and, and why the SEC established those rules in, in what you said before about protecting their best interests? Because that's really what the SEC is about, right? The Security Exchange Commission is there to protect Americans' interests to not be... Uh, not be hoodwinked and uh, get into a deal that maybe lose their money. Sure. So the, the the main distinction is kind of accredited. First, you have accredited and unaccredited, and that is a, a big distinction when you're finding which exemption under the 33 Act that you're going to use to be able to go out and raise money. And an accredited investor, the SEC defines it. There are probably eight or nine different categories. The two used most common is as an individual, you need to have a yearly income of $200,000 with a spouse, $300,000, or you have a million dollars net worth, excluding your principal residence. Um, there are other ones for, for various funds. Certain investors meet the 1940 Act, but by and far, net worth and yearly income are the two thresholds used to become an accredited investor. Um, when you're accredited, you are essentially able to invest in all the different exemptions under this rule. There are much less restrictions that the SEC imposes on accredited investors versus unaccredited, with the reasoning that they feel that unaccredited investors, they may not have the sophistication level that an accredited investor does. Right. 
and, and, and it's really a line in the sand, right? Like, cause I, I've got people that I know that may not necessarily have the net worth, but they're, they're quite savvy uh, or, or the income. They're quite savvy at, 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 at understanding real estate deals, but they don't meet the accreditation standard the SEC put out, which is, and I get why they put it out there. You know, it's a line in the sand. They've got to put it, say, okay, you got to earn $200,000 or more or your, your, you, you, you've got to be worth, um, you know, a million bucks. And, and, you know, if you, let's break it down. It really, they're saying if you're of this stature, you could handle if the deal went sideways, right? Like that's what they're trying to get at, that you already have a income or you already have a net worth to ride out any sort of bad times compared to someone who, who, who's, who's, who's not, not accredited. That's it. And that's what they're getting at, whether rightly or wrongly, because as you said, you know, I know people that, you know, so, someone could sit and listen to, to Reed's podcast and know a great deal more about real estate and what to look for than an individual with five, ten million dollars that knows nothing and just says, "Here, take my money." The the one individual with the less money may know a lot more and be much more sophisticated. But the SEC has drawn that line in the sand and says, "Well, you've got ten million dollars, so maybe you can afford to lose the investment more than someone with less disposable income." Right. right so, right. rightly or wrongly, that that is the line that they have drawn in the sand. To, to just kind of distinguish between the accredited and unaccredited investor. Yeah. And it's also you know, to, to my point earlier, like in Australia, I'm not as, as familiar with the Australian law, but I do know when you are um, trying to raise money, like you, you can only go to people who have a net worth of over a million bucks. You can't get non-accredited investors involved. And under the rule 506B for Bravo, you can have up to 35 non-accredited investors who, who don't meet that $200,000 know, income or a million dollars. So in Australia where I'm from, and I don't know in Europe, it's, it's a lot harder um, to, you really need to be that high net worth standard. And, and when you're trying to start a business or you're trying to start a real estate business, you may not be rubbing shoulders with high net worth individuals every single day. So you go to people that you do know, friends, family, colleagues who have a bit of money they want to invest. But if you're doing that in Australia, they wouldn't qualify and thus they couldn't invest in it. So it's slowly changing. And, and I want to bring up, Jeff, uh, that have you seen a big shift since 2009 or 2008 when we did have that recession? I feel like there's been such a big mental shift in the way people place their money and not just putting it in the stock market and now wanting to invest directly into hard assets with the operator rather than through like a publicly traded REIT? There has, and especially not even just since 2009, but in the last few years, there has been a, a big shift that we've seen in investors' appetite for alternative assets, whether that be investing in growing startup companies or in the real estate field, directing, investing directly with a sponsor to actually have a piece and a feel of, of that real estate. Um, you see it more in... You know, it's still in the kind of public arena as well. There's been a proliferation of real estate investment trusts where people still have that thirst for this alternative asset real estate, but even more so on kind of the, the, the private aspect when people are, like you said, investing directly with a sponsor in a syndication or in a general partnership. It's really across real estate asset classes. Right. Yeah, no, it's and it because of the control and and seeing that your money's backed by a tangible asset, a lot of people lost a lot of money in the crash. And and I know with my experience, I've seen a lot more people, a lot more flight to 
physical assets, also um, minerals, you know, gold and, and silver because um, it's, it's, it's a physical asset. So uh, where their money is backed by something, not just backed by a piece of paper on the stock market where they could halve their money overnight if they're not, if, you know, per what happened in the 2008, 2009. Um, but what also talk to me a little bit about the Jobs Act that came around in, I think it was 2012 with the whole crowdfunding. And we've definitely, we've, we've spoken a lot on this podcast about crowdfunding because it's, it's definitely a, a great form. Um, but the idea of why the SEC brought out the Jobs Act in order to enable more people to invest directly in companies rather than having to go through, you know, buying, buying a stock or something like that. It really it, it kind of came about after after the, the Great Recession in 2009, where they wanted to spur more, more growth. And the Job Act, as you said, it really just allowed crowdfunding to take off. And as you have talked about on the show before, you know there are big real estate crowdfunding sites where, you know, a sponsor that is having trouble raising money can go onto a site like that with with caveats and the fact that it's it's not always successful, but it did open many investments across the country um, to investors that may have not known that sponsor or you know that asset. When you're in California, you're not necessarily privy to all deals in, in, in Tennessee or you know maybe even Texas, where a site like that, like you know, you're, you're, would allow you to you know, access those sponsors and those types of deals. Right. No, it's definitely been a huge boost in the arm. And I've also seen the opposite effect happen where it has been a lot of rush to market with these crowdfunding websites. But, you know, particularly in the real estate sector, real estate's still very mano a mano. And the whole idea of like, you're just going to be cruising around on the internet, you know, uh, seeing a, something across a website and then investing $100,000 into a random real estate deal because you trust, you know, Realty Mogul or Patch of Land or there's, there's a bunch of other things, a bunch of other um, crowdfunding websites out there. It still finds me like there's a lot of these small boutique um, crowdfunding that came to came to the market then sort of fizzled away because particularly in the real estate world that they just didn't have uh, these broker dealers that they just it wasn't they weren't dealing directly with the the asset itself they may not have known uh, as much about the asset uh, or, or, or the, the, the sponsor and thus you know people when they're putting up large sums of money they want to have that come you know, be comfortable with where they're investing. Um, so have you seen a little bit of uh, I, I know I have, but I don't know if you've seen a bit of a, a, a drawback of a big rush to, to online crowdfunding to now being sort of coming easing off a little bit. It has. And I think it's for the reason that you just pointed out is people have, and my experience have kind of flocked to this, this field and this alternative investment in real estate because they wanted to have that tangible asset. They wanted to have a relationship with the sponsor and know who's making their investment decisions, who's running the company. That person has a track record. They know what they're doing and the investors are going to get the return that was promised to them and get through, get their money back. Right. And these, these sites that have you know kind of proliferated and to some extent gone away already haven't given those investors that relationship with that sponsor and that feeling of being tied to the asset. It was almost a kind of quasi middle ground between your public markets and your, and your private markets. And some of them have just not taken off to the extent that I imagine that their, their founders thought they would. 
G'day guys, I want to interrupt today's episode as I'd like to take a moment to thank our wonderful sponsors. Without their continued support, we would not be able to bring you the most cracking real estate investment tips to help you be successful week in, week out. This month, we have partnered with a cracking, innovative peer-to-peer investment platform called Diversity Fund. At Diversity Fund, their goal is to reduce the wealth gap and enable everyday Americans to achieve financial freedom by investing directly into commercial real estate deals, specifically value-add multifamily. Now, the thing that sets Diversity Fund apart from other peer-to-peer investment platforms is that they offer high-quality investment opportunities without the usual cost of entry. You can invest with Diversity Fund for as little as 500 bucks. That's it. $500. And the best part is that you're investing alongside operators who are the best in the business. So what are you waiting for? Start investing today and get access to deals that historically have only been available to the top 1%. To find out more, head to diversifund.com. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-Y-F-U-N-D.com and use offer code invest in the US when you sign up for an account and receive a $20 gift card when you make your first investment. That's diversifund.com. Now back into the show. Right. No, no, I definitely has seen that. And I, I know we, we try to use a couple of crowdfunding websites on, on a few deals in the past and, and they, they didn't, we had more success with our own investors and in going out to people that we knew um, to come in and, and partner with us rather than going to a third party crowdfunding website that, that sound great on the pitch, <laughs> but they, they, they took the deal out and they couldn't, they couldn't raise a dime. Um, and then that really probably came down to the education of who we were as sponsors, what the asset class was, and that's where, you know, you've got to be really careful when you're going out to these crowdfunding sites that they can perform because you might get into a situation where you're trying to put a deal under contract. You're like, oh, I'm going to get, raise the equity through crowdfunding site A. They said they can do it. And then all of a sudden they leave you high and dry at the altar. Um, and you, you as a sponsor may not necessarily be able to, to get the deal closed. And then you as the investor who was hoping to, to get involved with that deal um, through that crowdfunding site it fizzles away because you know there wasn't enough capital to be raised so it's it's very interesting to see that come and go um i've also seen a big resurgence in in, in having these co-gps co-sponsors where people come in and they they do partner up with with the with the syndicator because um, the operator might not be great at raising capital, um, and so they bring on people who are involved in the day to day, but they you know focus on raising capital. How how do people avoid? Because I've seen a lot of it. How do frankly how do people avoid not having to get the broker dealer license if they are you know being a true GP in the in the deal and they're they're involved in the in the day to day operations? Because I've I've definitely seen people out there you know pumping that that type of uh, their chest about that sort of stuff. Yeah, there's that, that happens a lot, and it again not just in real estate. It happens with all capital raising. Is you know, people may you know they're a great operator. They you know they know how to run the project, but they're just not able to raise the capital to get it done. So the SEC again regulates what we call broker dealers, which is really any individual or company that is out there raising money. And there are exceptions. You, you, you know, if you work for the company or you're an executive officer with the company, you're allowed to, to raise money. But the distinction and the area where you can get into trouble is if you go to a third party and that person has been tasked with raising money for you. Mm. Um, if that person is not a registered broker dealer or falls into one of the few exceptions that the SEC provides, um, 
both that unregistered broker dealer and the company can get into uh, into trouble, both financial and otherwise, with the SEC. Yeah, and, and so, so what are those exemptions for those people out there who may think, oh gosh, I've raised some money for some people that hopefully I've got to go tick the box and make sure that I'm doing all the right things. The biggest one is what you try to do is with your third party is to kind of classify them as a finder rather than an unregistered broker dealer. And the SEC, although it's not a kind of bright line in the sand, what they have opined through no action letters um, and some court opinions is that if that third party individual, if they're, if you are compensating them as, as a commission based on how much money they raise, they are a broker dealer usually an unregistered one. But if that third party, if you were paying them you know, merely for introductions or you're paying them a salary just to go out and introduce you to people and to raise money and it's not contingent on if they raise a million dollars or $10, then they would be classified as a finder. Got it. And so that, that distinction really is, is there, um, is, there, is there commission tied to how much money they're raising for you? Right, right. But it's also... You know, but if you're doing more, what if you're doing more than just finding money? Like you're actually doing the day-to-day operations, and you, that's a true partner, right? That's a, that's a completely different definition. Right. They would be if if they're exactly in, involved in the company and their operations, then they'd be tied to the company, and that would be an exemption as well. So if you know, if if you and I created, you know, we became sponsors and we we're looking for money, and my my job was to run the construction aspects and you were doing operations and, and fundraising, we would be exempt as well because right. you wouldn't be a true third party. You're, you're connected to the company. Yeah, and I think that's what the big, there's been a lot of scare with people under, you know, getting, oh gosh, I'm going to go to jail because the SEC, I've introduced some people. Um, but a lot of, uh, you've you got to do more than just raise capital. And that's what the big, and I've had a lot of people on the show talk about that, um, where you're not just dialing for dollars, you're, you're, you understand the deal, you've been to the deal, you, 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 you manage investors. And, and at the end of the day, like all partners involved in any one deal, like, um, you should be bringing money to the table, right? Because it's, it's how we get it done. The, the whole reason you get involved in larger deals is, you know, you pull people's money together from, you know, uh, partner A and partner B and partner C and, and, and you get the deal done and, and over the line because, you know, individually we've, we've come together as a collective because we can't close on that deal by ourselves because we just don't have a stack of cash laying on the sideline. So I think um, people listening to this um, can understand that the reason you go and partner up with other people they're going to bring equity to the table. You're going to bring equity to the table. You're going to bring roles and responsibilities to the table. They are going to do the same thing. You truly are being a partner in the deal. And, and uh, so, so make sure you're doing that. You, you're, not, you're not going to get into any trouble with the SEC, right? Yeah, it's, and it, it has other benefits as well. I mean, when you partner, you are sharing the risk, with an, risk and responsibilities with another party. And you're both bringing your expertise, education, you know, abilities to the table to make this deal successful rather than each of you putting aside the fact that you might not have the funds to do so you each running your own deal you're able to do a deal together spread the risk among yourselves and spread the risk maybe among different projects so instead of you each doing one you can do two together and you share the risk you share the reward right which leads to often leads to successful relationships Right, right. No, it's 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 a fascinating rabbit hole we could we could dive down. Has there been many um, court tested stuff where people have gone to to jail and 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 been sued for illegal capital raising? Um, you know, ever or since the recession, because since the Jobs Act, in more more in particular, with with a little bit, I don't want to say loosey goosey, but 
a lack of understanding of what that Jobs Act brought in 2012 that people now think they can just go out and raise money willy-nilly? There have, I mean, the, the, the caveat there is there are so many different exemptions that you can fall under with the SEC to, to raise money from investors that you need to really be doing something wrong or not even make an effort to run afoul of, of the laws, especially, you know, more so when you're dealing with unaccredited investors. But there have been cases and opinions regarding unregistered broker-dealers because that is probably the bigger of the two issues where individuals or companies sprout up offering to raise money for you know new sponsors or, or individuals starting their first projects. And unbeware to them, they have engaged an unregistered broker-dealer that the SEC um, is a kind of red button hot issue for them which which they have gone after right right no and, and can you maybe outline some of those exemptions for people listening because not everyone is a lawyer obviously not everyone understands all the exemptions but maybe just i don't know how many there are but maybe give us spit off the top three to five if, if there are any sort of exemptions for those people listening and particularly operators because they need to understand how they they might be good at operations right they're not and finding deals and putting deals under contract and construction but they might need a partner to come in with a bit more of the equity finance background to to bring the debt to the table, to bring investors involved, to to negotiate purchase and sales agreements, and so to have an active role. But they might not be. They've also one of their major roles is to bring in capital. So, so what what would the some of the exemptions be? So on the two different areas, one is the un, the broker dealer, and one is just complying with the thirty three act. With the broker dealer, it is it's really one main exemption. The thing you have to be aware of is you cannot compensate someone based on how much money they raised for you um, if they're an unrelated third party. So can't be a percentage of what they raise. It needs to be a, a fixed amount regardless. You're engaging someone to help you, pay them a fixed amount, not contingent on what they raise. Um, you comply with that, then won't run into any issues. With the SEC, as you mentioned before, there are a number of different areas, exemptions that you can fall under in raising money. The biggest ones are the 506 B and C, depending on whether you are going to advertise, whether you're going to sell to unaccredited and accredited investors. And the reason why so many people gravitate towards the 506 C exemption is it really allows you to advertise your deal. You don't have to worry about blue sky laws, which are each individual state securities laws because 50C supersedes those laws. So as long as you comply with 506C, you've complied with all state laws. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, there are other exemptions. There are 504, which you mentioned, which is a, a, a big but often overlooked exemption. It allows you to raise up to $5 million in any 12-month rolling period. Um, you can sell to unaccredited and accredited investors without complying with the burdensome regulations and disclosures that you have to use under 506B, which often makes it prohibitively expensive, um, not just on attorney's fees, but in document preparation. But the caveat with 504 is you need to comply with state laws. So if you were selling securities just in California, you might be able to take advantage of 504, still sell it to your unaccredited investors, and just make sure that you're complying with the state laws. Got it. 
Got it. No, so it's, 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 it's obviously a very complex issue and something that people have been uh, very concerned about and, and wanting to make sure they're compliant. That's why they've got people like yourself, Jeff, to, uh, to guide them down the right path to make sure that they're doing things correctly and, and legally and above board. Because at the end of the day, the whole point of getting involved in real estate and, and, and investing money is to make, is to make more money. And, and, and you want to do it correctly and you want to bring, you hopefully want to bring your friends and family involved if you can, because, you know, when, when it, uh, it's, it's better when everyone wins. So, um, so yeah, but is there any other things that we, uh, have, you know, you want to tell the listeners about, you know, what to watch out for when, when raising capital um, in, in the, you know, from, from private individuals? I think it's just you be honest with your investors because we've just seen too many instances, you know, from really the other side, from the investor standpoint, where we've had sponsors really kind of over the over promise and under deliver, which I think is a phrase used quite often is you want your investors to come back for deal number two, deal number three, and create this long-term relationship. And you do that by giving them what you've promised. So you know, underwrite conservatively, tell your investors what they're going to get. Don't promise them the moon and, you know, deliver a, a star. Right. Um, and that puts you on, on the right track going forward. And then when you're, then when you knock it out of the park and your results are better than expectations. Your your investors are are ecstatic, and they can't wait to sign up for for your next deal. And you just you hit the ground running. Right, and and also, you know, be be honest. If a deal is going, you know, not not great, you know, you got to keep that communication up as an operator. Um, and, and investors like that, right? So, um, the 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 hard pill to swallow is that you know, as, and, and I try and educate and don't try and pull the wall over anyone's eyes that you are investing in a risky, in, I say risk, a, a risk adjusted, you know, investment and things can go wrong. You know, a high cyclone can come through and blow it out. You know, <laughs> you know, you could have an earthquake. You can, um, the, 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 pro, uh, the property market may fall off a cliff in terms of the economy. Like a lot of things can happen. And that's why the SEC have put the, 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 the accredited and sophisticated laws in place. So you understand that. And, and as an investor, you need to understand what investments you're getting involved with what, and, and, and what are the risks, how do they mitigate those risks. And you need to understand what operator you're going to be um, investing with and make sure they've got a bit of a track record. On the, on the operation side, um, yeah, you need to understand how to mitigate those risks and answer investors' questions. And if things start to go wrong, don't be afraid to tell them and be, be open. And this is how we're dealing with it. And because that will help you in the long run, um, building that trust and, and transparency. Hopefully that if, uh, if a deal does go south, they're not, uh, they're not coming after you for blood. <laughs> so I'm sure you've seen- I can't stress that, that enough. That's such a great ad. It's just communication because we've had- just, and investors, if you keep them in the loop, even with bad news, you know, for the most part, they'll understand you're doing your best. You're open and honest with them. If you hide stuff or sweep it under the rug and try to fix it and things are getting worse, that's when relationships sour. That's when lawsuits happen. So open, honest, clear communication, even if it's just, you know, you know, nothing new, but checking in, giving an update, it, it, it works wonders with, right. with investors. Right, it does. It does. Well, Jeff, mate, I want to be very respectful of your time, um, but thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, at the end of every show, I like to ask my uh, guests to uh, give me their top five investing tips. Are you ready to get into it? Sure. Mate, what is the daily habit that you practice to keep on track towards your goals? 
daily habit. I every morning or night, it's I think it's organization, and every and I, I religiously outline what I'm going to do that day. If if I don't, I'll get on a phone call that will eat up two three hours of time, and I I miss deadlines, unable to review something. So really, it's just organization, knowing what needs to be done, and staying on top of those tasks. Nice, nice. Are you do any, you know, are you, are you, do you write things down? Or do you have an app for that sort of stuff? Both. I'm kind of old school. I still will take a uh, just a little three ring binder and kind of write out my tasks for the day, and I end up kind of updating it throughout the day. But just writing it down helps me remember what I need to do and when I need to do it. Awesome, awesome stuff. Um, who is the most influential person in your career? Good question. I would probably say I have two partners in my law firm, uh, Bill Loker and Jonathan Wolf, and they are both, they have both been really influential in kind of shaping my career from, from different reasons. Bill is probably, he's probably the most creative out of the box person that I've ever met. And whenever I run into a problem or unable to figure out how to get a deal done or how to bridge two sides that won't meet in the middle, so to speak, he is the guy that I go to and is able to get that across and and john is just the most de- detail-oriented person i've ever met he will make sure that every t is crossed every i is dotted and that that is a just in my career and in real estate in general paying attention to numbers and details you know really staves off disaster and yes it does the combination of both of them has just been has been amazing and, and back to what we we're saying before you know being attention to detail as a as an operator or as an investor, it comes down to that the sophistication and, um, and accreditation, you know, standards and, and, and knowing what you're getting yourself into. And I think having people around you like, like your partners have been clearly influential in your life and your career, which is, which is bloody awesome because it, it, it helps build those same traits in yourself, right? It does for sure. Mate, third question is, what is the most influential tool in your business? Now, when I say tool, it could be a physical tool like your three-ring binder, or it could be uh, an app or, 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 or something that you use in your day-to-day that keeps the business running like clockwork. You probably get this a lot, but I have to say that it's just, it's the internet. <laughs> the, the wealth of information and the ease that we have it nowadays, then, you know, as I say, like, uh, Bill Loker is older than I'm sure you, know, you had 20, 30 years ago to be able to pull property profiles, to get deeds at the click of a button, to 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 kind of communicate through that through that and get this information is it's just a game changer. Nice, yeah, no, it, it has been, and then the, the how efficient we become with our work product. Um, is just drastically reduced um, with the internet and, and, and stuff like uh, you know, computers and, and, and PCs and all that sort of stuff. So in the last 30 years, our efficiency uh, to get work done quickly is, is definitely blown through the roof. Like, I don't know what's going to be for the next 30 years because we've come so far. So uh, we're back in the 80s. We didn't even have personal computers. Now we've got, everyone's got a, a computer in their, in, their, in, their, in their pocket. So awesome stuff. Mate, what has been the biggest failure in your career to date? And in one sentence, what did you learn from that failure? Biggest failure, I think when I was starting out is not knowing what you don't know. And that is a, a kind of disastrous um, 
tray and, and, until you realize it because it can if, if you, you start doing an assignment for a client you, you think you know what you're doing but you don't really know until you know so that is something that happened early in my career and now that I now we have you know a great team of, of people at our firm and when there's a tax question that is out of my expertise I don't even attempt to answer it let me let me hop down the hall let me let me, let me ask someone that is an expert in that field and and vice versa right no i think that's in, in incredibly important that to be humble enough to if you don't know the answer go find it out right and and um don't think that you know everything because that can lead to failure that can lead to issues because you're walking around thinking your your shit don't stink right <laughs> so right for sure. Uh, mate, last question. Uh, where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to find out a little bit more about your firm, uh, maybe be in your sphere, maybe get some legal advice from you guys. Where do they go? Sure. Uh, our website is gibbsgiddin.com. It's G-I-B-B-S-G-I-D-E-N.com. And my email address is jlove at gibbsgiddin.com. Awesome. Well, mate, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. Some of the big takeaways that I took away from today's show was really understanding, uh, you know, being knowledgeable about the difference between broker dealers and having a, a true partner. And, and I think as operators, as people involved in deals, you've got to really look at yourself and say, well, am I, am I actually raising capital and getting a fee for it? Or am I doing much more than that uh, and, and acting like a true partner? And, and you want to make sure that you're talking to your attorneys like Jeff um, to, make, to make sure you're not, you're not treading on the, over a gray line or stepping over the line with the SEC. Um, the other big thing is is knowing, you know, Jeff, that the, the, the evolution of where we've come from in the you know, from the, the, the Jobs Act all the way through to people raising money and, and online crowdfunding that is coming to fruition, and that but also how it's had a bit of a negative effect um, with stuff that's going back the other way, um, and then also understanding the difference between you know, knowing your investments and, and making sure you know what you're getting involved with so you can understand the risks um, of, of placing capital. Otherwise, if you don't like those risks, keep the capital in the bank account, right? <laughs> did, I, did I leave anything out? Yeah. No, I think those are, those are the big ones. And it's just, you know, keep, keep, keep listening, keep, keep learning. And, the, you know, that, that's how you get success, successful deals because you, you, you learn the information that you don't. Um, and keep on going yep and it's also about surrounding yourself with people if you don't know you don't have to know like you said before all the answers but you can bring someone on on your team like yourself jeff who can who can be that advisor um whether it be as an investor or as an operator both sides of the coin you can still use people like yourself jeff that can that can advise and say hey well i think you're doing this wrong for xyz or i think you're investing in this wrong deal for xyz so um so don't be afraid to go out and pay for a little bit of help because we all want to be successful at the end of the day. Um, that's what this show is about, trying to educate people uh, about being successful and, and not falling into any loopholes or any violations with the SEC or any legal stuff. And, and I think having a good attorney on your team is, is paramount to anyone's success. So, Jeff, um, I want to thank you once again for dropping by. Enjoy the rest of your week and we will catch up soon. Thanks so much. 
Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Jeff Love. If you do want to get involved with Jeff or just reach out to Jeff, make sure you head over to gibbsgiddon.com. Check out their website. They are based here in Southern California. They're really knowledgeable about all things syndication related uh, from both the investment side and also from the operations side. Uh, If you have any questions for Jeff, please reach out to him there. I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. If you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give it a five-star review on iTunes and share it with your friends. And we're going to do it all again next week. So be bold, be brave, and remember, go give life a crack.